Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana. And I'm Kristen. And we are super pleased to welcome back writer-director Jason Cabell. How are you, sir? Hey, good. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Big fan of the show, and it's good to be back. It's it's great to have you back. Now, this was an episode that we definitely wanted to do. It was a, a follow-up to the two episodes you've done already, uh, one talking about sort of the history of Running with the Devil, then we were talking about your film inspirations. And then, of course, Kristen and I did a review of Running with the Devil. So it's been out for almost a month now. And, you know, what do you think about the response the film's been getting so far? Well, we're pretty big in Ukraine. <laughs> it's uh, it's done okay. I think it's in 100 screens. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a quick theatrical release, but it's doing well. Uh, I think it comes out in Russia and Australia uh, the 24th. So I'm excited to see what that does. But, you know, I think we, we got a couple. We got a good LA Times review and we got a good uh, variety review. So uh, I think we're doing okay. Absolutely. So, Jason, I'm curious a little bit if you could expand on what it was like mm-hmm. for the premiere of this film, because the movie came out in September and then you had your premiere in September. So what was the mm-hmm. premiere like? It was big. I mean, uh, it was funny talking to Clifton and, you know, I, I produced the premiere. So, you know, I had a really good publicist that we work with Quiver and, you know, there were some things I wasn't thinking about and we had security because well, you realize there's going to be like a thousand fans on the sidewalk. I said, there's no way there's going to be. And he goes, just wait. So I showed up and I mean, it was we had the layout pretty well and the theater seats, you know, 500 and we had standing room only. And there was close to a thousand people standing on the sidewalk. So, you know, I, I talked to my kids about it and stuff and I said, look, we're going to do this again and we'll probably do it. Hopefully, you know, every two years or less. And I said, but this one was big. I mean, I, I've done a couple other indie movies and stuff, but this, the premiere, even Clifton came to me and he's like, look, man, you know, I've been to the big ones on Hollywood Boulevard. And I've been to a few big ones with him, but uh, the, the buzz and the electricity because of Nick and Lawrence and that whole cast. I mean, uh, we had the best press coverage uh, that we could get. And we had a great publicist, Jim Dobson, who worked with like George Clooney and some other people. He was brilliant at, in the logistics and setting that whole thing up. Who, uh, who, who was able to make it to the premiere as far as the cast? Well, we had Nick and Lawrence. Uh, Peter Facinelli was great. He came with Lily, uh, his girlfriend. Let's see, Clifton came. Um, and then we had some other, like Nicolette Sheridan showed up. She's friends with JT Holmes and some other really cool people. And like Tommy Lee came to the after party from uh, Motley Crue. So we had a pretty good turnout. I'm trying to think. Oh, Adam Goldberg came. Um, let's see. Yeah, I think that's about it, Adam, because Cole was out of town and Barry Pepper and I talked. We talked pretty regularly and he was out of town and, you know, he was trying to make it to the last second. But, uh, you know, th- those guys didn't make it and Leslie didn't make it. But we we talked. I talked to her fairly regularly as well. So what's going through your mind at this premiere? All the work, everything you've done. You started this project years ago. Mm-hmm. It's all come to this moment. What's going through your mind at this premiere? Oh, it was good. I mean, I think those are the couple moments of celebration and you do release the film. So there's all that tension and you wonder what's going to happen and how the universe and the world is going to receive it. And you do release it. So, you know, uh, it was good. And, you know, we had to, it was really good. And the after party went on till five thirty six in the morning. I mean, I had 71 seals there and 
all my other spec ops buddies from all the alphabet soup agencies. And, you know, we had a pretty good party. Sounds like a really good time. I wish we could have made it. <laughs> oh, I know. I was hoping you guys would. I mean, I was I saved you seats. So <laughs> you guys could have, you could have done. It was so big. I mean, the lobby and I was hoping you could have made it out to do the show live there because we did talk about it. And it was, it was good. I mean, we had some really good press there and I think you guys would have had a good time. So next time we'll get it. We'll plan it ahead and get you in there. Guaranteed. Hopefully you guys just come out to LA and start doing the show out here, man. Listen, that's, that's the plan. I mean, that, that's, that is definitely the plan. So you do the the premiere in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit about some of the, the the promotion you did leading up to this. You did, Mm -hmm. you did a few TV spots. Can you talk about what that was like and, and you know, that experience? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I went down to San Diego, uh, you know, where I spent most of my adult life and I did a few spots down there. Um, we did again, obviously I did your show, which I really enjoyed and a couple others and, um, it was good. You know, I think anything you could do to promote the movies nowadays with social media or anything, um, it helps, you know, especially when it's a smaller limited release like this, uh, you have to get out there and pound the pavement. So when it comes to the people that you chose for these roles, I'm curious, Mm -hmm. how did you go about deciding like which character you had in, did you have characters in mind as you were putting everything together and who was the first one that you really reached out to? Well, you know, I did. And it's funny because the evolution of this, this started off as a 38 page script. Believe it or not, one of the first people that read it and rest his soul was Robert Forrester. And I had lunch with him and he was going to, you know, play the keeper and a couple of things happened, but he, he was a fan of the script from second one when, when we were just at 38 pages. And then as I started shopping it around, they're like, well, what is this? <laughs> you can't make a 38 page script. You know, who are you and why do you only have a 38 page script? But the genesis of this at the beginning was, you know, uh, we had talked about this a little bit was, uh, all is lost or, um, castaway. So, you know, I wanted to do a minimum dialogue movie that with physical acting and, you know, that type of thing. So all the characters, that's why I didn't want anyone to have a name. It was the woman, the man, the cook, the, you know, the keeper. Um, and, and it was actually kind of harder to continue to come up with generic names like that to just say, Mary Smith or Bill Johnson, you know, so, yeah, for sure. So I really love that, the way you did that with the movie, because, and like we discussed in the review of the film that Dana and I have done, the fact that you really don't connect with these characters, mm-hmm. and you have more of a connection with where the drugs are going, and the connection with the characters isn't as important, and that's something that I picked up on with that film right away, and I love the way you did that, because with the names, you know, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. that it just, it's perfect, it's perfectly fitting. Well, you and you guys got that right on the head, and some people do, and some people don't, and you know, there's traditional ways to make movies, and I wanted to kind of flip it on its head, where, again, you don't connect, but if you do you kind of like the man character. You shouldn't like him. And you maybe don't like the agent in charge as much, but those are the traditional, you know, protagonists and antagonists. And I'm like, I kind of want to flip it around a little bit and see, you know, people, but you, you completely got that. And like you said, the connection to the characters, I wanted there to be several, you know, five to seven to 10 minute movies that all connected to move this thing along. And that was the purpose of this. And, and, um, you know, like I said, some people get it and some people don't, but that's it, you know, and I didn't want people because I took out, I had several more scenes with like 
the man with his family and the agent in charge. And I said, let's pull that back a little bit so that people don't get too connected to their, their backstory or their, I wanted the, the, like you said, the, the, the main character of the movie's always been the kilos of cocaine. It comes across really well. I think the, the, you nailed it. I think had there been more parts where you do have that personal connection with these characters, it wouldn't have had that same impact with the main character being the, the cocaine. That's what the goal was. We want to go through a few of the characters one by one because okay. I want to talk a, a little bit about how do you create them? Where does the inspiration come from? We'll start with Nicolas Cage's character, the cook. And I'm wondering if there is real life inspiration you're able to draw from from some of your experiences. So let's start with the cook. You, you've got to come okay. up with this character. Talk about it. Well, you know, I, from all the people that I talk to, and again, like the thing is, is we have this trillion dollar war on drugs. We pay this drugs are a million dollars a year and there's that infrastructure, but you can go to any city, to any party, to any and get cocaine if that's what you want or, or almost any drug for that matter. So what I found out is, you know, a lot of people want to tell these stories of the El Chapos or Escobars and it's that you know, kind of the kingpin type thing. But with all the money we're spending and all the time and, and with the borders and everything else, why can you still get drugs 24-7? So that is where these little decentralized rat lines, this is how it really works. And and I know that for just about smuggling anything, like when I was in Iraq, and that's how things, those routes they use or go back to biblical times. So, you know, we do the same thing here. So, most of the people, they do hide in plain sight. So I wanted to take characters and say, okay, this guy runs a pizza joint in Seattle, which is what a lot of these people, but, and you're never going to look at them. They pay their taxes. They don't, you know, they're not, they don't look like gangbangers or anything else. They're driving a dented Subaru, which he, you know, he drives and That's how this stuff works. And, and that's how people, that's how you can still get, drugs you know 24 7 and, and people want to glamorize it so much and the ones who do and drive the lamborghinis and loud music they usually get caught pretty fast you know so that was the purpose of all of that is that these are just and they don't i mean that it's a commodity to him it's a commodity to any they could be selling toasters or whatever and and it's just the job and they truly don't see anything wrong with it, you know, and it's, it's a commodity. And that was the purpose of the boss going, all right, you better go fix this. Like it's an accounting problem or something, yeah. you know, like some administrative problem. So what about Lawrence Fishburne's character? Because he is still, I mean, you said <laughs> we're not supposed to like him, but he's got sort of this affability about him. He's, he seems to always be a little bit optimistic about everything, even though he his world is kind of crumbling around him. He mm -hmm. still seems optimistic to the very last minute. So give me your thoughts on, or give me the, uh, the, the inspiration behind that character based on anybody or, any, or just somebody you just came up with. Well, it was somebody that I just kind of came up with. I think you take, I don't necessarily know anyone that's some crazy party drug addict, you know, but I think you just take bits and pieces from, you know, people that you know that are fun and you want to hang around with, but, maybe they're not good for you, you know, like as far as eating junk food or whatever it is. So I just kind of blew that up to, you know, as far as it could go with, with opulence and with just addiction to sex, to drugs, to anything you could be addicted to. But then you see 
oh yeah, I got to go to my kid's piano recital, you know, and that's, I love that moment with him and Adam Goldberg, where he's like, what, what are you talking about? So that, you know, that was a, a very, all those kind of things, you know, I was so happy that it came together that way, because just, I spent weeks in New Mexico looking for the man's house, you know, and then when I saw it, I'm like, this is it. We had that old TV in there and all the artwork. And I mean, it, as soon as I saw it, but I kept going and going, nope, that's not it. That's not it. That's not it. And then I love the truck that they're driving in Mexico, too. That's got the oh, perfect. Yeah. The, yeah, this is yeah, great. Yeah, I was yeah. thinking about that while watching the movie. Like, where did you find that? It's the perfect truck. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. <laughs> the details. Listen, that, yeah. The truck we had, we actually lost a day of shooting because they had to bring that truck all the way from. Uh, Bogota to Cartagena and the drive for real takes like 30 hours <laughs> you know there was that, that truck was almost sunk the ship if you will but it, I mean, we did get it out there so for sure how long did it take to shoot that scene in the man's house when when the the, the call girls are over there I mean because it's still mm-hmm. one of and we've talked about this before it's one of the coolest scenes in the movie as far as aesthetically no, like so so how long does it take to shoot that particular scene that was all a day i mean it was all day and i mean cory geriak the the dp was so brilliant and that's why we came together because that scene was in my head and i and when i met with him i said hey i want to do this day to night to day to night scene this light gag and it seems like two days pass and i want to do a lock off and he was going to do a, a camera test at universal that day so he said I'm going to send you a sample of what is in your head. And he sent it to me by that night. And I went, there it is. That's it. So we ended up, he, he just, we jived so well. I'm, I'm looking forward to working with him again too, where I could explain something to him and then he could capture it. So the, the light is what took, I mean, setting up that day to night to day to night, we did the lock off with Lawrence and then it took like three hours to set that light gag up um, just to get it right and everything else. And it was it was we were walking around on eggshells because once you lock that camera off where Lawrence was sitting, I mean, you can't touch it or you just lost everything that you've already shot. So, you know, that was uh, we roped it off and it was like, stay away from the camera. <laughs> <laughs> so what were some of the more technically challenging shots to pull off in the movie? Oh, man. Well, you know, Columbia was tough because of the weather. And, you know, when we had that checkpoint scene, that scene was huge. And even like Peter came, he's like, yeah, I did Twilight and all. He goes, I've never been on a set this big, man. (laughs) We were laughing. But I mean, we're 500 extras there and, you know, all those vehicles. And it was just it was a half a mile square. You know, it was was a massive scene. But then we were fighting the weather, too, where we would get everything set up and it would almost be like, you know, when you're playing street hockey car, you know, the rain was coming in. And, came off. Came on. Yeah, yeah. It just came on. So and if we kept fighting. And, you know, like I was saying, because, you know, we went down there right after Peter Berg and Wahlberg and they did mile 22. And I talked to Peter about it. And it was funny because I'm like, well, you guys had it easy. You didn't come in the weather. We went in the rainy season, like the worst time of year to go there. So, uh, you know, and then the schedule got flipped on its head. So uh, Nick had to leave and I think Cole had to leave. So where we had it, the schedule set up perfectly where it's like, we're going to go to this place for three days and this place. And you got to realize like the traffic in Bogota makes LA look like Montana or something. I mean, it's so brutal. I, there was a couple days where literally I got back to the hotel. 
I went up and showered and ate and then got right back in the car to drive right back to set. It was like, why did I even leave? But you want to get warm again. And, you know, it was so cold and rainy. But but so what happened was they had to leave. So then they came and said, you got to shoot these guys out by Friday. And this was like Sunday night. I'm like, okay. So what we did is we had to shoot the beginnings of all the scenes and shoot out Nick and Cole and them. And then I went back a week later to finish like the scenes with the checkpoint, the scenes with at the bullfighters house, that, that house where we shot with Christian Tappan, um, you know, where Nick and Cole come out of the, the uh, back room where he cuts the guy's throat and all that stuff. I, I want to talk about Peter Pascinelli just for a moment. Yeah. He's awesome. We had, he's, awesome. Yeah, yeah. We had him on the show a couple weeks ago and mm-hmm. we opened up the conversation talking about running with the devil. Yeah. And, uh, he told a great story about the mustache. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah the, no! I tell you, man, the way he that guy transformed. He 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 parted his hair differently, and he flew in. So I mean, we were jamming, and I was on set with Cole and Lawrence, and I got off the elevator and I looked, and I did. He was standing there, and he looked like a federal agent. So in my head, I'm like, oh my god, what have I done that's caught up to me? And they're gonna arrest me on the set of my movie. <laughs> I had this little moment, and he's like, Jay, and I and I didn't even register, and then he came up, and I'm like. Oh my God, Peter! It's you. And he goes, "What do you think?" I'm like, "Well, I mean, goddamn, look at him. Like, <laughs> this is so perfect." But you know, and Peter and I hang out together, man. Our kids play together. We go to barbecues and stuff, and and I didn't even recognize him. So just the way he changed his hair and that mustache transformed him, and he's so brilliant. I mean, that guy. Uh, he was so fun to work with, man. And that's what I think it's all about. Is like, and I I learned that from being in SEAL Team too, and you got to do the work and the work's going to get tough and it's going to get rainy and miserable, but it's the people you want to eat breakfast with, you know, and you want to hang out with it. Peter's definitely one of those guys. And I love collaborating with him and he's a great writer and he's just, he's the whole package. And I, I love working with that guy and I'm looking forward to doing it again really soon. So yeah, well, we're looking forward to that too. I mean, he he did such a great job in that film, and oh, to yeah. see you guys pair up again would be really great. I'm excited. No, for it's that. Ha- it's happening. Trust me, <laughs> it's happening. A couple characters I want to ask you about. Mm-hmm. Um, the captain of the boat. <laughs> All right, yeah. I have a question. I have a question for you about that. He looks very familiar to me. Uh, yes. Uh, okay. Do you remember the 2012 movie Act of Valor? I vaguely. Okay. Okay. Oh, you mean the Navy SEAL yes, movie? Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do remember. He looks. He looks like one of the guys in that movie. Is it him? Yep. Or, it, it is, is him. him. No, wow. Good call, Dana. I, I, I yep. told you. I, we were watching. The movie, yeah. We were watching the movie this morning, and I said, "Listen, when we talked to Jason, I said he looks exactly like. Well, not exactly because he got the big bushy beard. I said, but that looks yeah. like the like the chief. Or I don't, I'm sorry, I don't know. Yeah. What's, yeah, chief in Act of Valor, which is a movie yep. I saw twice in the theater. This is clearly somebody you know. Mm-hmm. And how did he get in the film? And and, and were, there, <laughs> were, were there other people, other people that you worked with in the past that you you brought onto the work with you on? Sure. The so uh, yeah, Derek Van Orden, he's the guy, and he was the senior chief and active valor. And him and I worked in the teams together for uh, over twenty years. And he's a really close friend of mine. And he has some chops. I mean, yeah. he really does. And he's done a couple other movies with John Voight, and uh, we're just really good friends. And. I said, hey, you want to fly down to Cartagena for a few days? And he's like, absolutely. So 
you know, he started growing that beard because he said, what do you want? I said, I want you to look like the Gordon's fisherman. And I said, I might even put yellow slickers on you. And we had him, but it was so hot. I was like, eh, the black turtleneck's hotter. So in team guy fashion. He looked like Ernest Hemingway. It was perfect. Yeah, yeah. No, he did such a good job, too. And I mean, those are some of the things like those little moments. And then the performances were there where I'm like, we could almost make a movie just on that little moment. And, you know, the guy that was with him, but he's a huge Colombian actor, too. The guy that played opposite him with the tank top on. Uh, he's been in just about everything else down there. And we got the cream of the crop in Colombia. I went to a nightclub down there and just watched all those performers, man. And they were all there hanging out. I cast that whole movie in like two minutes when we were in Columbia. I just, I, it was so fortunate how all that came together. So in the film, the drugs, mm -hmm. you know, there's obviously, there's an issue, the accounting problem, if you will, mm -hmm. where your clients are, are dying. So mm -hmm. what exactly, I mean, were the drugs supposed to be cut with something specific? You know, Lawrence does say that when he's sitting on the log with Nick, and he says fentanyl and heroin. Yeah. And then he says, oh, yeah, no, no. So that, I mean, it's it's kind of ambiguous. So what happens is the Mexican government is also hijacking the loads. And that's where Barry Pepper goes and meets with that guy. And he's like, sorry. But, you know, and he kind of is like, let's make a deal here. It's very ambiguous. But, you know, it's like, let's, he's, you know, saying, well, let's make a deal. And hopefully we could stop this. But then this, besides the supply chain being broken, Somewhere along the line, someone is doing that and recutting the drugs and they're having it's bringing too much heat down on the, the rat line because people are dying in the streets. So it's funny because he could have just gone around the corner at home and figured it out in five minutes. But, you know, he didn't think it's going to be his, you know, his one of his closer guys that was doing it. Yeah. You talk about, I mean, you, you mentioned fentanyl and heroin. That's the mm -hmm. cocaine's being cut with. And, and fentanyl is certainly something that is i think more in the mainstream as far as awareness awareness mm -hmm. of it and i'm wondering if you could speak to a little bit about sort of the the epidemic of, of sure. this of this fentanyl fentanyl because i know even just here where we live in florida there's it's stories every day about people overdosing mm -hmm. and wh where did this happen because the fentanyl doesn't seem like it was in the, the the lexicon of drug conversations even 10 years ago so what's happened right. Well, so fentanyl and carfentanyl are synthetic opioids, and they're so much stronger than, you know, um, heroin and morphine, if you will, and they're lab created. So I think that fentanyl is about 100 times stronger and carfentanyl is like 10,000 times stronger. And, you know, I had back surgery in in um, the end of March, and uh, I, I was talking to the because I'm doing research for another, and I was I was talking to uh, the anesthesiologist, and he said, "Yeah, carfentanil has such a quick half life, though, like it's in and out of your system that you have to keep taking." But fentanyl, it's granularly where if they put too much into something, uh, you're dead, and there's no. I mean, and if you talk about Prince, and there's some other you know big celebrities that have died arguably because of that fentanyl and you know there's philip seymour hoffman potentially and and even heath ledger where i think a lot of people that get into the heroin business um primarily but then they have had these massive epidemics and or and overdoses where people are think they're just doing a line of cocaine and then they're just dead 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 and like there was a weekend in ohio where i think 182 people died of overdoses because of of cocaine cut with heroin and, and fentanyl. 
And, and where is the so, fentanyl coming from? You said it's synthetically produced. Yeah. It? Well, it's a lot of it's coming from China and, but they're learning how to make it. And it's, it's, I mean, if you just look at it from a business standpoint, you think of to grow poppy fields or to grow, you know, uh, the cocoa leaves, how many acres and acres of land you need and you got to water it and fertilize it. And they, in a small, tiny room, they can lab create fentanyl now, which is 10 times, 100 times stronger uh, and it's putting them out of business. And then what they do is they'll take like one kilo of heroin and mix the fentanyl and turn it into five or six kilos. But it's, I mean, it's so scientific and you look at anesthesiologists are the highest paid doctors in the room. So you can't think somebody on their kitchen table recutting this stuff is going to pay that much attention to detail. And then sadly, when you get into overdoses, a lot of the addicts, they start chasing it. They go, oh, we're hearing people are dying. This must be the uh, the ultimate high. And that's, I mean, literally so, and I have a movie that's coming out, you know, we're going to start in January called Opioid Nation, which is about this. So, um, you know, sadly, that's, this is the, the facts is that the, the market is being flooded with synthetic opioids. And it's, I mean, it's changed. That's what most of the problem is, uh, based on that. Well, hopefully, I mean, hopefully, Jason, you know, having these films that do showcase what is going on and the severity of the repercussions of a drug Mm -hmm. like that, hopefully it sheds some light for people that don't know enough about it or that don't have the insight as to what is really going on. And hopefully you end up, this movie can end up saving people from going down a path. And I I hope, I think that your insight into it, even just in this conversation might be able to be enough to deter someone from doing something that they could regret later. So I thank you for that. Yeah. And and I'm going to continue to do that. And sadly, see, the thing is, is that they say like 33% of people that do it, it's not like it could be you. It could be me. It's not like you go, well, you're, you're a shit bag. You're an addict. It has nothing to do with that. It, I've taken uh, opioids for surgery. I've had knee surgeries. I've had this. I've had that. You know, we all have for even going to the dentist. But, you know, one in three people, they take it and it's such an intense high. They're hooked for life and it actually changes the chemistry in their brain. So there's really nothing you can do about it. And, and I consider myself one of the lucky ones where, you know, I've had surgeries and this and I take the pills and they end and I'm done with it. But some people, you know, they say it takes three or four days and once they've done it. And so I'm showing that as well, where the, one of the storylines in the movie is, is about a, a girl who's about to be an Olympic caliber swimmer and go to college and she gets in a car crash. And within weeks, she's hooked on the pills and can't get anymore. That's, I mean, these are things ripped straight from the headlines too. So, and you know, I ripped a lot of stuff from uh, running with the devil from the headlines. Now you fictionalize it and you know, you have to weave that stuff in there, but this stuff is really happening. And, and um, I think we have, you have such a powerful medium with movies. If you can tell the right story and if people can get it, you know, maybe like you said, if it can just change one person's lives or, or they can get help and, and, and stop it. But the addiction thing, it's, it's an epidemic right now. And they, I mean, in Chicago last year, they talk about the gun deaths, but there was twice as many opioid overdose deaths. I, and I don't quote me on the numbers, but let's just say there were 600 gun deaths. There was like 1200 opioid overdose deaths. So it's twice the number of murders 
with guns that people are dying, but nobody's really talking about it that much. Is this isolated mainly to America or is this fentanyl uh, crisis happening all over the world? Cause is it let Mike actually follow that question up with, you know, is America still the number one market for, for drug purchasing as far as yeah, it, drugs? It's and it's supply and demand. And I think we have the money to do it. And I mean, I think it's in Europe, it's the same thing though. And most of the, the heroin in Europe comes out of Afghanistan and we could spend hours talking about that whole dynamic, but you know, it's the same thing. And when you're making X amount of money per acre or hectare, or, you know, then it's hard to beat something like that and you're not going to beat it. And it's, it's simple, like fourth grade economics, you know? <laughs> So, and that's what it is. And Mexico figured that out in the early eighties. And now they supply almost 90% of our heroin. You only have to cross one border. Cause a lot of people think, Oh, the golden triangle in Thailand and Burma or Afghanistan, it's literally coming from Mexico. Cause in the early eighties, they're like, wait a second, we could grow these flowers. And you know, and you, you get into that whole dynamic and it's, and now you can say, wait a minute, we can get a scientist to do It's the same with like methamphetamine too. We in a small room, you, when we don't need to water it and it's not out in the open where someone can fly over in a helicopter and go, look, there it is. Let's destroy it. You know, they drive so around they, in Winnebago's, yeah, you know, yeah, that. exactly right. Yeah. But going back to the movie for, for a moment here, just a couple uh, smaller questions I have for you. Again, we were watching this morning before coming on the line with you here. Uh, what is the necklace that Nicolas Cage puts around his neck? What is? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's the patron saint of. Uh, Oh, I'm going to have to ask my sister, but it was one of those patron saints. And we talked, I talked to Nick about it and I said, you know, that was going to be the trigger where, you know, he kind of buries that in his little box in the floor with his gun and his passports and his money. And as soon as he puts the necklace on, it's game on. And even his wife knows that. And that was like the trigger where, yeah, he goes home. I think it's a patron say to travelers, whichever one. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't I'm going to get into some heavy, heavy spoilers right now. So, again, for the listeners out there, if you haven't seen the movie, you've listened this far. Uh, if you don't want this spoiled, stop right now. Watch the movie. It's available everywhere. And uh, and you've been warned. I want to talk about the decision to kill Nick Cage at the end of the movie. Was okay. that something that was completely always in the script? Did you shoot multiple endings where he survives? I mean, what? where was the decision to have Leslie Bibb kill him? No, no, that was from version one. And Nick insisted on it as well from the first time he read the script. Uh, and we went out there and he liked that. And um, this, the finality of that. And I mean, look, it works because sitting in that theater of over 500 people, the gasp when that happened was loud. <laughs> and I went, all right, it worked. So that was what was, you know, that's when I knew, you know, sitting in a theater full of people. And I went, <gasps> and then the chatter right after that. So, no, that that plan, that was planned from second one. And, and how it was done, there was a few other versions we kicked around. But um, in the kitchen, I thought it would be the best, you know. And he was, you know. The full circle of that was really mm -hmm. well done. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. There's a great uh, picture you put up on your Instagram with Nick hanging off the side of the cliff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> tell me, just t t tell us a little bit about like shooting that scene because it looks, yeah. I mean, is he strapped to the side of the yeah, cliff? Yeah, he I mean, is um, by just wires. I mean, listen, that's the thing that I, I strive to do too. We did no green screen. 
and everything was done practically the skydives the that and so i found the stunt guys and we looked for that cliff and you know reading that and, and i said guys we're gonna go up there and they're like yeah no problem no problem and both him and lawrence and we went and walked it in the morning and it was freezing up there i mean just eleven thousand feet in the snow it was single digits and you know we had to walk quite a ways and spikes and stuff to get up there but they looked at it and you know, no problem. We hooked them into the rigs and they jumped right over the side. I was like, wow, man. <laughs> I was more nervous than they were. And I was a SEAL for 20 years. And I was like, I don't know about this guy. And they're like, come on, let's go. So that, you know, they were, they got into it. But no, we did it. And uh, again, those stunt guys were amazing. And they built that rig in the wind on the side of that cliff. And, you know, it was, that was a big process i tell you so but i like that doing things practically instead of green screening it or you know i do too and i think it brings such a more realistic feel to to a film i mean you know mm-hmm. i get the green screen and there's just certain films where you have to have the sure whatever aliens and this i mean but for <laughs> a movie like what for running with the devil to have mm-hmm. it be practical effects i think is so impactful and it makes it even more interesting just because mm-hmm. of the way it was done and i love that well, I appreciate it. Yeah, and I'm going to continue to try to do that. I mean, and it is, if you could just set it up and rehearse it, but I had such great stunt guys and I had those guys in New Mexico and, and, you know, again, we went up there and it was so windy and cold and I was like, I don't know, man. And Nick and Lawrence were like, come on, let's go, let's go. You know, and they were fearless up there. So I love that, you know, it, and it went, it went well. That's <laughs> so. awesome. Well, yeah. the, the thing about practical, and, and I know Kristen and I have had this conversation quite a bit. We're we're big into practical. We love '80s movies, for, particularly because yes. because because of practical effects. Uh, the 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 CGI and the green screen, it's not one to one just yet. I still don't think in 2019 that it's that you cannot no. fake practical. Like it just mm-hmm. looks so much better. So, and that was one other thing we were talking about when we were watching the movie again. It's like. How, on a technical level, how good this movie looks! Like those shots inside the Blackhawk, those the, I mean, everything about the movie just looks so damn good. So kudos to you. I appreciate. Oh, I appreciate that. No, we were all and kudos to Corey Jiriak. I mean, he, and we that helicopter day that was was bananas with the weather, and the Colombian government gave us. But I was running five cameras, and believe it or not, we shot that whole scene in four hours. That's all I had. And, you know, it was we were running and gunning and running and gunning. And I'm like, do we have it? Do we have it? Do we have it? And because the weather was coming in and the guy's like, look, we got to get off the side of the hill. We they showed up a couple days prior for rehearsals. And, you know, I was having been a rope master and call. I knew exactly where to set them up and stuff, you know, for real life and to set up that ambush. We, we found that valley. You know, when I found that we were going somewhere else. And everybody was sleeping in the van and I, I was watching and that was like in this valley, this copper mine. And I said, stop the van. And I got out and ran and the interpreter was running with me in the location scout. And I just knew that was the perfect site just because of if I was like, if I was going to really ambush somebody, I would do it here and I can land the helicopter here. We could set up the base camp here and that if I had been sleeping like everybody else, we would have gone right by that site and never found it. So it was it, and it works so perfectly, I think, you know, with that helicopter flying over the ridge and, you know, how that all worked out. It couldn't have been better. No, that couldn't have been a better location. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. You talk about, we talked earlier in a previous episode about the skydiving scene. And I just want to touch mm-hmm. on it one more time because to understand 
for those who have seen the movie to understand, like you had somebody jump out with that camera. And yeah, with the Ari Alexa Mini. Yeah. And there's not a lot of people that could do that. You know, in JT Holmes, the skydiver, you got to realize we were in. So my friends own um, Skydive Phoenix and I work with them in the SEAL teams. And there was a, there's a, an ex-Marine and some other guys that all own that drop zone. And so we went there. It was a hundred. It was it was in May. You know, it was over a hundred degrees. We got there the night before, and we were building that rig. And then one of the guys that was there, who you know, that we were building the rig for the camera. I'm like, are you sure you could do this? And he's like, oh yeah, yeah. I said, well, the time to figure it out is now because literally the way the lines come off that chute at 120 miles an hour, if your head is out of, it'll rip your head off with something that big on your head. So, and they had jumped stuff similar, but not quite that big, but they did such a great job. And we had the best skydivers in the world, not some of the best. We had the best and to pull that off and the best pilots. I mean, we were almost touching wings a couple times with those airplanes and you know, those guys. And I, I w- I'm used to that kind of stuff. And we had bailout rigs on and I have thousands of skydives. So I'm like, well, we'll just jump or something. But I took Corey and, and the first AC up there, uh, Christopher, and they were, again, they were fearless. And at first they're like, are you sure? I go, hey, we got parachutes on, man. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just kind of took for granted that I spent my entire adult life hanging out of aircraft and stuff. And those guys hadn't, but they got the shots. And I had Corey strapped into the door with me. And we were, we were getting as close as we could to JT Holmes and them getting ready to jump. And we had to do it over and over again because I had to get clean jumps and I had to get the guy jumping out of the plane with him where we couldn't film it. So literally from sunrise to sunset, we were filming that all day and over 100 degrees. And then Rich Barner came and he was didn't complain once like, hey, let's go. And he was up and down and up and down and up and down all day long, man. And, you know, it was that was a tough day of shooting right there. So real you, tough. You had Rich up in the plane. Like, yeah, 100 percent. We built, so where the pilot was, we built, you know, uh, to make it look like Rich was flying the plane. And we, I put it again, fearless. I said, hey, put the chute on, man. If we touch something, jump out. He's like, all right, let's go. <laughs> and we were up it all day long, up and down, up and down. And, and uh, yeah, he was fearless, all those guys. And I was super impressed because we did some some gnarly stuff up there. And it was so hot, man. And it was just up and down and up and down. And then we had to get the stuff from the ground. So it took all the 12 hours plus the day prior prep. But still, to get that done in you know a day and a half or so, uh, most bigger features would have taken days and days and days to do that. But we got it done efficiently. And um you know, it was good. I think the scene plays good and it, yeah. it got cut together. And we filmed the back end of that in New Mexico. So you got to realize like where he lands, I, I had the shoot there and I just had JT lay it out on the ground. And then, you know, we filmed that and then we cut all that. There was a lot of scenes that I filmed half of it in New Mexico and half in Columbia even. And most people will never yeah. know. <laughs> well, I'll never tell. But, you know, there's some where we started the scene in New Mexico and got what we could and then finished it in, in Bogota or Cartagena. The scene where the man is killed. Mm-hmm. So this is basically, I mean, they were, they were sending a message. This yep. is this is what happens if you mm-hmm. if you pardon my French if you fuck around with us this is this yep. is the ultimately what's going to happen. I was and found it kind of interesting that 
you know, he's being burned alive, but Nicolas Cage decides to put him out of his misery. Mm-hmm. And what what are your thoughts on that? Was that always the plan there? Well, they were we friends talk- or yeah, that was the big thing. And there was some other stuff that, that again, this could go into the prequel that their friendship and stuff. And like when Cole Hauser cuts the tattoo off his arm, I don't think that played as well as, as I planned it playing, but yeah, that was it kind of like, all right, well, you're dead anyway. You suffered enough. And this is for, even though you let me fall off the cliff, I'm going to be the, the bigger person here and put you out of your misery. Cause burning to death's a little extreme. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he, he decides to shoot him. And we, and I talked to Nick about that and I talked to, and I'm like, you know, we got to make, even though these guys aren't doing things, I had to come up with some way to make them a little likable. All right. You're burning the guy, but eh, I still kind of like you didn't let him suffer. So, so those were really, really strong choices, but we did discuss all that. And, and I did do it where he just let him burn to death. And then we checked it. I'm like, nah, I, I think it's much better if, if he puts him out of his misery because he, he knows he gives up, he puts his head down and goes, well, you know, this is it. You know? So talk about going back to the premiere for a moment, because you said there was a, a, an audible gasp when Nicholas Cage is, is killed on screen. What other reactions did you get during the screening that you were hoping for? Or were there any reactions that you're like, Oh, I, I didn't expect the audience to react to that. Well, you know, I think the month, the movie is funnier than, uh, there's some real dark humor in there. Like there were some really good laughs. Like when, when Nick shoots Adam Goldberg and he says, would you hold on? The reception out here sucks. I mean, we got a pretty good laugh on that one, which, and we were laughing on set when we did that. Oh my God, that was kind of funny. So, you know, there's some good humor in there. Um, I think, you know, Lawrence's character played really funny. We got some really good laughs there. And in some of the stuff, you shouldn't be laughing, but that's what I wanted. I wanted people to just go, all right, well, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't laugh at this, but it's, it is kind of funny, you know, or, you know, so, cause I think the whole idea of this is kind of funny, you know, like I said, the futile effort of the drug trade and saying we will, you know, that we'll put El Chapo in jail, but, Again, I don't I don't do drugs, but if I want if you guys said bring me some cocaine, I could probably find it pretty quickly. That's just the way it is, right? Yeah. Absolutely. So one of the questions that I have for you, based on these characters and the fact that we like you mentioned, get to know a little bit, but not too much, which I think mm-hmm. it was perfectly done for the movie. Is there any chance or opportunity to have more of a prequel on some of the backstory? with some of mm-hmm. these characters, because I would love to see you be able to explore that. hundred percent. I think we could, you could do, and, and I wanted to do it that way. You could do a movie about the man and the cook earlier on. You could do a movie about the agent in charge and, and Peter's character, all of them. You could have a movie about like, um, and that, that's something I've been kicking around where maybe it's seven minutes before, if you will, you know, where what's the snitch really doing? What's the, you know, and, and I think you could totally do that. And, you know, obviously there's, you know, we had talked about going really deeper with the boss character and that there's a boss's boss somewhere in the world and you know some other stuff like that so it's i mean it is open-ended for sure one of the feelings that i had while watching the movie and i know i have mentioned this before in our review but i really felt like you know watching one of my favorite movies is the departed and when Uh, i oh yeah and when (laughs) watching the departed you really kind of have that 
when is it all going to come together feeling and and watching running with the devil it had a very unique and well similar feeling to the departed where in the very middle of that movie you have these characters and you're not sure how to feel about some of them so it really reminded me of the middle of a of a Scorsese film watching oh, running wow. with the devil well, and <laughs> oh, thank you I'm I mean it it had that, that feel and and that I think that's the main reason for me really wanting to see an exploration of these characters so what's the beginning you know where, where some of the beginnings of these characters and i think nicholas cage the, you know the cook would be an excellent one to start with because he seems like such a regular guy it's almost like a mm-hmm. breaking bad you know I, i'm picturing mm-hmm. walter white from breaking bad and like the beginning and how nicholas cage got involved in this do you mm-hmm. have kind of a backstory for a lot of these characters mapped out or had you had that mapped out prior to filming a hundred percent and that's another way to get you know, you have to, to have that to get the film sold. But I made the choice to kind of cut that out. Like I said, I mean, I have, you know, I know what all those characters eat for dinner and for breakfast. And, and that's what you do. But I wanted to show and again, the normal way is to get people and that's how people want to get involved in those characters. And they want and I didn't want to give people that I wanted to say, well, let's give the minimum and see if this still works. And I think it did. And, you know, some people get it, some people don't, but people are used to it being a certain way. And I said, well, let's flip it on its head, you know, and see, see how that works. But no, I know, uh, again, there, I have pages and pages on each character and you have to, because that, and the actors want to know that as well, too, when you're trying to get this type of a cast and you're going out to this type of a cast, if it's not, super well defined and they don't like the material you're not going to get nick cages and lawrence fishburne and peter Fauci. they're going to go pass 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 they have to fall in love with the script those guys are all reading dozens and dozens of scripts a week and they're getting bombarded with material so that's where it that's it all starts right there and if they don't connect with it and go oh this is something different or new or whatever it is that attracts them to it, then you have nothing. And, you know, nobody got massively big paydays in this movie. This is still a low budget indie movie, you know, for it's a tier one indie movie. And that's where, you know, this wasn't a payday for anybody. And they all brought it. I mean, Lawrence brought it. Nick brought it. Peter brought They all brought it. And I was so... I mean, Adam Goldberg, the scenes with Adam and, and, and Lawrence, I mean, I just, I could, I've watched this movie enough to be sick of it, but I, I could still sit and watch, you know, and you do, it's like a song or something, but the, some of those scenes are just, I can continue to watch over and over and over again, you know. That's awesome. And I, I know you said it's a tier one, you know, indie film. My God, it doesn't look like one. I mean, well, I not appreciate at all. that. Not at that all. That was the goal. Well, and that was the goal, you know, and that was the goal. And that's what I'm going to continue to do. And, and, you know, um, I got a phone call last week from Ron Meyer, who's the head chairman of uh, vice chairman of Universal. <laughs> and he said, hey, I watched your movie and wow, I really enjoyed it. And what are you doing next? And I thought it was a joke, but it really was. Ron Meyer called me and was like, this you, this was great job. I'm impressed with what you did. And uh, we had a pretty good conversation. So big things on the horizon, potentially, for the next film. I mean, I know you yeah. said you've got something in the works. Are you uh, I do. able to give us any insight on that yet? Well, yeah. I mean, we talked about it. It's Opioid Nation, and I've, I've talked. We, we have offers out to 
some very familiar cast members and I've talked to some of them and we haven't closed anything yet. So, you know, I don't want to, but there's, you'll see a lot of, I'd say probably a good percentage of the cast from uh, running with the devil and then some others that we're talking to. And this has a, a really strong female lead, but again, it's an ensemble and it's, um, it's babble meets traffic, but it's the opioid. That's what, you know, when I met the production company, they wanted three, uh, three stories that all meet up in Chicago. So we're going to do it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, we're, we're, we have a tentative start date of late January. So that's exciting. Yeah. Now Chicago is yeah. her hometown. So it sure I, is. Oh, I know. Well, I'd say I was born in Chicago. You know, we've, we talked a little bit about opioid, opioid nation the, the, the past couple of times you've been on. Uh, you mentioned this call you just got from Universal. What else you got going on? You got you, you continuing the writing process. You have ideas beyond uh-huh. Opioid Nation that you can talk about. I mean, you're, you've yeah. got to be constantly the creative juices have got to be constantly flowing for you right now. Yeah, I um, I actually there's uh, there's a book that uh, I might adapt uh, that I got that there's a contract flying around and they came to the premiere. Uh, that's a pretty interesting story about uh, money laundering and some other stuff. And uh, there's some life rights that I'm going after um, about a guy on the East Coast that was wrongfully imprisoned uh, and got himself out of prison. So, yeah, there's a there's a pretty good list. And then there's some uh, some open directing assignments uh, that my agent has sent me that I'm looking at right now. So I'm trying to set up yeah the next couple, really. And like I said, we're we have offers out for Opioid Nation and a start date. But, uh, I'm, you know, I'm trying to set up the one after that as well. So. so do you ever just take a step back and, you know, when you retired from the Navy and you wanted to become a filmmaker, have you just lately just taken a step back and just reflected on, you know, what's been accomplished in this incredibly short period of time <laughs> and, and what the future really looks like? I mean, you must take a step back every once in a while. You know, I haven't really because I think it's just it's it's kind of a grind and you have to keep the blinders on and keep moving forward. But I had someone tell me the other day, they said, hey, look, you don't have to stop and smell the roses. Just acknowledge that they're there. So I I think I'm doing that. I'm acknowledging them and going, "Okay, you're over there somewhere, but I need to keep moving. And I think, you know, when you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, I mean, you guys have this great show. It, it, you're doing what you want to do and what you're supposed to be doing. So you don't think anything of it. And yeah. I don't, I don't, I mean, this, this just feels right. And I know I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And yeah, it's extremely difficult. And, you know, as I'm continuously learning the production side, um, that's the other thing that I'm, I'm working on. And I have some people that I'm discussing and, you know, talking about getting my own production company. So, uh, I think after this next one, that's going to be the step, um, you know, to have a company like that. Because as you look at all the pieces, um, you know, that's that's a big part of it. So I look at how to get the mission done, how to get the movie made. And, you know, you can have all that creative stuff and be able to write scripts and direct movies. But if you can't get them produced and you can't get the money to make them, then you just have really cool art projects, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and then if you also, if you have the money in the production side, 
but you don't know how to utilize it and get find writers and directors. But that's why I think it's so interesting to be a writer and director and a producer where you can take something from the beginning stages and get it all the way to market. And you have to put on all kinds of different hats at different times. But um, the creative control that you have and the ability to tell the story that you want to tell gets you know amplified a lot if you if you're writing directing and you're part of the production that's incredible yeah. and constantly moving moving the needle forward you know mm-hmm. constantly doing the next what's next what's next that's i mean that's mm-hmm. most definitely how i know dana and i think about everything i mean sure how can we what what can we do now what's next what's so yes i it's, it's good the, that you no, look no, at the I roses have, i mean i have a whiteboard that's full right there behind me and you know it's full of the what's next and it's you know and i have a very i i, I the 28th of uh, October, I have a big meeting coming and I have several meetings, you know, and you just, you don't know where they're going to lead, but, uh, you know, it's just getting in those doors, the doors, bigger doors are opening and bigger doors are opening and that's all you can ask for, you know? And, um, as long I just, I have, I've always been a grinder and I'm not trying to skip any steps. Cause like you hear like the guy that did, um, cop car, and then next thing you know, he directed Spider-Man. That's great for him, you know, but there's everybody has their own path. And, you know, I'm just continually, continuously climbing and climbing and climbing. So, you know, I'll probably do another seven, eight million dollar movie and then we'll see what happens after that, you know. Um, but the biggest thing is, is that you get them to market and they make money. So, and I have a deal on the next one with guaranteed screen count. So, you know, that one will definitely be getting a theatrical release, which is a big deal as well for an indie film. That's awesome. So, well, we, we're yeah. excited to talk to you about that once you get going on the project. It. Like, we're really, really excited about it. I mean, just it—it it sounds fascinating. Is the is the best word I can use? It's just incredibly fascinating. The, this idea that you've got for your next project, and we're we're. we're I mean, once we get going, uh, you know, and when it starts happening, you guys should come and see it. From I mean, because it's different as well. The when you watch stuff on set and you see the evolution of it. And then you get to see the finished edited project. And I'm discussing uh, with a really big Oscar winning editor this time. And he's, you know, I think him and I are going to be able to collaborate on this one and work. And I'm super excited to work with him as well. So. Well, I know, I know we would be delighted to come out and visit the set when this, great, thing, when this thing's getting filmed. You just keep us in the loop on that and we will definitely oh, be absolutely. there. Absolutely. No, that's awesome. My pleasure. We have fun. Yeah. Well, listen, Jason, it was awesome having you on the show as always. I know this will not Thank be, you. this is not going to be the last time you're on here. I, I always get excited to, to have you back. So same uh, uh, anytime, anything you guys need, just let me know. And I, it's always a pleasure. We appreciate it. It's thank been a you. pleasure. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Kristen, thank you as always. Thank you, Dana. And thank you, Jason. What a pleasure talking to you. Absolutely. Same, same. And uh, my name is Dana Buckler and thank you so much for listening.